0: Welcome to Our Journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish. Democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union.
1: Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Chris Wolfe, and joining me this week, our roundtable of radio regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Good executive morning. director for health and human rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, our continued Beacon Hill representative, Jeff Roy, the head of Franklin's Democratic Party, Rachel Plukas, our station manager, Peter J., and my hey. co-host, Nick Remesong. The elections are over. The red wave became a ripple. It is rare for an opposition party not to make big gains in the midterms, so the outcome has left Republicans a little dazed. Some are even daring to question the dominance of the Donald over their party. Some of my Republican friends say the Republic itself is now in peril, while some of my Demar- De- while some of my Democratic friends say democracy has been saved. Hyperbole or is there some truth to either claim? Here in Massachusetts, Republican Governor Charlie Baker has conceded to Maura Healy and Healy will become the first openly lesbian governor of any state in US history and much, much more. Today on the show, do the midterms mean we're heading toward a more perfect union? Uh, Jeff, I probably should start with you and uh, uh, offer congratulations or commiserations on uh, your new term.
0: Yeah, you. I I will certainly
2: take congratulations because I am elated and excited that uh, I will be returned once again. Uh, to the statehouse, And one other thing I'll add about uh, Mara Healy, she is the first woman that we have ever elected as the governor in Massachusetts as well. Mm. So uh, it's, it's amazing that you think of Massachusetts as this incredibly progressive state. And it took us until 2022 to finally, uh, finally do it. And I'm just very excited to uh, get working with her and her team Uh, Just yesterday, I was uh, right back, uh, still exhausted from uh, campaign, but I did a uh, climate summit with Congressman Jake Auchincloss over at uh, Olin College of Engineering. And, uh, you know, when I stood up at the uh, podium, I was moderating the first panel. I said to the folks in the audience, uh, I said, you know, it was risky for me to set up and agree to uh, do this panel because, Tuesday could have had a much different outcome, and I could have been standing up here as a very depressed individual, but I have to tell you, I've never been happier in my life, and I'm rejoicing at what happened uh, on Tuesday, and I am so excited to uh, get back to the work and the seriousness of the work, and uh, it's such a treat to be here in a a crowd like this without the distractions that... uh, Uh, campaigns tend to bring along Uh, great messages I think uh, throughout the country you know I'm not going to engage in hyperbole in terms of uh, democracy being saved because I think you know democracy uh, works itself out every time we have an election every time we send people to the polls every election is important and I, I hear people say well this is the most important election in our lifetime well every single election is important And uh, I was encouraged by the incredible turnout. People came to the polls, energized. Uh, Half of the people voted early and by mail. All incredible signs that uh, the people are engaged. And uh, we are indeed headed to that more perfect union. And I did have several people come up to me uh, on election day. My, My ritual is to stand at the polls from six o'clock in the morning, I actually got there at five thirty-eight a.m. for the record, and I stay at the polls until they close down at eight p.m. I don't leave for a meal. Um, I, I I stand there. I want to I want to see people. I want to talk to people. I want to engage with people. Um, I want them to see uh, how much I want this job. And some of the conversations that uh, occurred that day uh, were boy, things are so terrible in this country and how are we ever gonna survive this? And I, I reminded them that in 1865, this nation was engaged in a civil war where brother was killing brother, sister was killing sister, and uh, it was uh, a real low time uh, in America. And we recovered from it. it, took us a long time, but we did recover because we all got together uh, with that understanding that uh, you know, coming together we can really make things happen. And it's so important. And let me share one story that I shared on uh, the anniversary of September 11th. And I think it really frames how important it is that we think of ourselves as united and bound together and how much we can achieve. Um, I coached girls softball um, 20 years ago when, when my daughters were young. And uh, I had this one team uh, that, uh, they looked like the, the bad news bears. I mean, I, I, I had, uh, some good athletes on the team, some not so good athletes, some big girls, some small girls, um, you know, just was wondering, you know, how this group was going to come together, uh, and, and have some fun and play some good softball. So I, uh, we were at one practice and I, I sent each of the girls, I said, go into the woods and come back with two sticks. And uh, then come back and let's sit in a circle. And uh, so they all came back and they were sitting around and uh, I had them each pick up one of the sticks. And I said, try to break that stick and snap it. And I don't care what shapes and sizes, they came back with some big sticks, small sticks. They were easily able to break that one stick. Then I said, bring your second stick up to me and I'm gonna put them all together and I'm gonna tie them together. And I handed that bound set of sticks, 13 of them. And I said, here, try to break these sticks. And uh, nobody could do it. And I said, that's what a team does. You come together in all shapes and sizes, and you can't be broken if you show up for one another and you're there for one another. And I'll tell you that uh, team went on to have a, a phenomenal season. They all showed up for their practices. They all showed up for their games. And they really understood what teamwork was all together. And I think that's what we have to uh, understand as a nation, um, that uh, if we bind ourselves together and work together, uh, we really can accomplish great things. And I am a man who's a glass half full guy. Uh, I'm an eternal optimist. And uh, I share that story because that's what I'm thinking uh, on the heels of election 2022.
1: May I just spread it a little wider there? Dr. Michael Walkle-Jones, you have some very good connections with Alabama and Kentucky through your work and your origin. So just uh, what's your sense of your read of the the wider picture and the places where Massachusetts residents don't normally get to very much?
3: Well, the, you know, that's...
1: Are the,
2: there other places than Massachusetts? I, uh, I wasn't
1: aware of that. Just, just a few. Yeah,
3: we have... We have these things called borders. You can't see them, uh, but they're (laughs) out there. Well, you can sometimes. (laughs) uh, uh, And I cross a few of them when I go to work. In Alabama, um, and thanks for asking, Chris, because uh, the current governor, Kay Ivey, who I personally think is a very nice, wonderful person, a good leader, And if you follow Southern politics, uh, you will be able to note that you don't hear her in the news very much, uh, like you do some of the other Southern governors. Uh, She won re-election. They uh, elected a new senator uh, for the first time in the history of Alabama. They elected a woman, albeit she's a Republican, not that that's a bad thing. Um, and I also happen to have been introduced to her and she's a wonderful, uh, sort of right of moderate, uh, some of that because she has to be, uh, without question, Alabama is a red state Georgia, uh, where I've got a number of friends that I visit with from time to time is in turmoil, uh, around their Senate race, but clearly with their governor and with all of the other state offices, it's still a red state. So the runoff between the two uh, senatorial candidates is a real oddity uh in Georgia. And I think it goes to Jeff's point around the uh the idea that there is some, I think, internal search that the Republican Party is going to have to do for its soul uh, because there are a couple of states, uh Florida, Georgia uh where it looked like the people were not only leaning right but leaning toward some kind of government that's unfamiliar to the rest of us and I have a sense of hope I'm like Jeff uh y- you know I uh as I uh as I talk to some of my republican friends as I look uh, at the landscape it looks like the american people uh the ultimate deciders in terms of who represents us, uh, made some pretty striking decisions. Now, I'm going to use a sports metaphor before I ask uh, Natalia to take a look uh, from her perspective, but I'm also going to use a sports metaphor. But mine is in soccer, Jeff, where I also used to coach uh, girls soccer. And in soccer, especially with young children, one of the real challenges for a coach is to have uh, your team act like a team. That is, instead of everybody running to the ball, someone has got to play without the ball and go where the ball needs to be next, which sometimes could be 30, 40 yards from where the ball is, all right? But if no one's there, uh, then you run into a problem where you can't move the ball. And sometimes the fastest way forward and here's my little piece for uh for thought. In soccer, sometimes the fastest way forward is backwards. Now think about that. And there are many occasions when I showed our team how if you run up against a wall of defenders, sometimes it's best to put the ball back to your fullbacks or even to your goalie and then boom. You find that opening, and there you go, down the sideline. And I'm sure my uh, my European friend, Craig, Chris, can attest to the fact that in soccer, man, uh, you know, you always are on the lookout for where is that opening? How can we get there? So, Natalia, what is it that you've seen in the last thanks, few days?
4: Thanks so much, Michael. And, you know, I, d- I did play soccer, too, uh, in Greece. And I was a sweeper. I was the last defender in front of the goalie. And I think it was because I was a good strategist. I mean, I was also, um, Jeff, one of the larger soccer girls. And so my size helped in college. I played rugby a little bit. Um, But, you know, I, I think that's important that from the back, you know, you might have to go into defense mode. You might have to not always be in the offense, because if you're the front person, you know, and the striker in the front that's trying to get the goal, you're not seeing what's happening behind you. And I think, the analogy there is what happened with the Dobbs decision. You know, what was happening, what is happening with young voters, with women voters, and how the Roe v. Wade sort of decision really ensured that people were had a chance to voice their opposition. Because I think the strikers in the front, you know, who felt that they had won through this, you know, more restrictive abortion, you know, decision, didn't realize that behind, everyone behind, Every woman, every young person uh, was really having a really difficult time with this and maybe even giving up on their own team because they were saying, what about us? You know, we've been with you. So I do I do think it's really important to highlight how Roe v. Wade and how, you know, I, I understand and correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, that even there were some abortion related ballot questions across the country and that they all failed, I believe. So that is, you know, from my side, uh, an important component. to to raise up in this discussion, but I liked, and and Jeff, I forgot to congratulate you, congratulations. And huge, hugely excited to have a woman governor. And I like that you ended with that, you know, the work continues. I think that's, you know, these cycles are really short. And so you can congratulate yourselves for a few weeks maybe, and then get back to work. So I think, you know, in that sense, what are the challenges? What were the lessons? Is there anything that we learned Um, around the youth vote, which obviously has implications for our climate policies as well. So those are the types of conversations I've been thinking about, but definitely feeling optimistic that there's a loud and clear message that this country doesn't exist, doesn't believe that the woman's reproductive rights should be determined by, you know, her local uh, politician, as Dr. Oz said, you know, something along the lines the patient, the doctor, and the local officials make the decision. It's like, no, the local officials should not be at the table uh, deciding a woman's right and, and health. So I'm glad that that notion was rejected loud and clear.
1: Yes, and uh, but I do want to note you know, that Dr. Oz, um, his defeat was very narrow. He still managed to get something like 49% of the vote. And um, as I mentioned in my introduction, I've heard from some Republican friends who are kind of, now they're the ones who are thinking like the Republic is in peril. And I'm not sure what it is their vision is that's, that's in jeopardy, what it is that they're afraid of losing. Um, I know Nick, you've have some friends across the aisle. Uh, maybe can you can help can illuminate. What is it they're worried about can losing? I just,
4: Chris, I just wanted to jump in on that point of the narrow wins because I was having the same discussion at the global level around Bolsonaro and Lula in Brazil. Like that was a really close race. So while we celebrate, you know, those of us who are more progressive, Lula's win. What does it mean that f- almost 50 percent of the country wanted uh, Bolsonaro? So thank you for for reminding us that a win doesn't mean, uh, you know, that 90 percent of the population is is with you. So sorry, yeah. Nick, jump in. No,
5: no, no. And, and of course, and that reminds me in this country. I mean, the last presidential election, the number one and two greatest vote ke- ke- uh, getters in the history of this nation were Biden and Trump. Trump still managed to gather more votes than anyone else had gotten before him until Biden's final numbers came in. And, Chris, you asked about uh, friends that I have who are diametrically opposed to my political views, whom I, you know, I, I, I discuss it with them. Um, I think mostly the problems they have center around what they see as fiscal responsibility. They just don't like the idea that um, their vision of a Democrat is someone who just pours it out with uh, two hands, but he's only taking it in with half a hand. They think that uh, the Democrats are just too eager to just give away everything, give away the house, the the mortgage, everything, and just more you know basically mortgage this country's future for votes today. And I think that's 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 been a problem, an ongoing issue. Now, but that a lot sounds of
2: to me like what uh, Donald Trump was doing while mm-hmm. he was president. He was mortg- mortgaging the future. If you want to see mm-hmm. fiscal responsibility, come to Massachusetts. I know. Um, you know, the uh, uh, there's 130, um, 130 Democrats in the House of Representatives versus 30 Republicans. And there's 37 Democrats in the uh, Massachusetts Senate versus versus three Mm-hmm. uh and that was this session next session the the number is going to be 170 democrats versus 30 uh so we picked up two more democrat seats in the house uh massachusetts has been democratically led since the 1940s and uh we are one of the most prosperous states in the nation uh we have uh the biggest stabilization fund of any state in the nation um we are an envy of mm-hmm. many states across the nation and that's a portrait of fiscal responsibility we collected so much tax revenue uh, that under 62F <laughs> yeah. we had to return it to the voters of I'm Massachusetts looking forward to that and i <laughs> i understand that some of the checks have already arrived in homes uh, already so uh you know be checking your mailboxes i mean that is if that's not an example mm-hmm. of fiscal prudence and fiscal responsibility, I don't know what is. No, I, I do. I, to, I agree with you. I mean,
3: I yeah, like yeah, I say. It's, it, it, yeah, it's. But here's it, the unfortunate part, though, Jeff. Yeah, many of our constituents are not aware and uh, of our history, and um, I would like to compliment again your sort of. Prognostication that well, you know, we need a lot more civil and civic engagement on the part of our students with your bill in terms of teaching uh, civics in schools. We also need to <clears throat> make sure. We also need to make sure that we need to publicize outside of our borders uh, the history of how not only has Massachusetts led internally in terms of our own commonwealth, but we are also leaders historically. The frame of the Constitution, as a matter of fact, was based upon many of the tenets that were in the Massachusetts Constitution. Uh the special ed laws in this country are based upon the special ed laws that came from Massachusetts. Many of the uh folks who don't realize that Obamacare came from the model that was first established in Massachusetts. Romney care. Uh yes, Romney care. And I, you know, for uh, my political soul, I don't understand why he didn't embrace that and say, oh, yeah, I'm the one who came up with that. All right. And just take total credit for it. But uh, when I talk to my friends, as a matter of fact, I had a conversation just yesterday with one of my uh, colleagues and friends in uh, Alabama, and we were talking about a project that we're trying to get off the ground. And I said, well, we've got some things that we've done in Massachusetts around that. Now, this was around teacher mentoring, around induction processes, etc. We have the number one school system as a state in the country, number five in the world in Massachusetts. And the response that I got from my Alabama friend was, oh, no, if we say anything about this coming from Massachusetts, it's dead on arrival. So- Albeit we can pat ourselves on the back and, you know, pay lots of homage to the things we've done. It doesn't resonate out in the hinterlands. We're not really our, promoting ourselves. And when we do, the rest of the, the country, especially in the South, may not take it positively. So you see it as a form of condescension. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. so we've got to deal with that. As a country, we have to deal with that because there is also the same kind of vehemence when I talk about some of the great things that are being done in Alabama with some of my uh, Massachusetts friends. Oh, come on. They're doing that in Alabama.
5: No way they're doing that in Alabama.
0: Well, it, it's, 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 it's interesting it's, mm-hmm. that, you know, at the state level, we could talk about that. But Robert Reich pointed out something several years ago on the national scale. If you look at Democratic, national terms versus Republican national terms, the Democrats either managed to maintain or reduce the national debt over a given term and managed spending far better than the Republicans did as a general rule. And the graph bears it out. But in the court of public opinion, you know, those who talk, you know, loudest, longest, and most boisterously are the ones that generate, you know, the opinion as the truth. But the Democrats have been remarkably responsible in terms of, of, of actually not being the party that they've been labeled as tax and spend. And so it's it's extremely difficult to take what can be obscure statistics and reduce them down to a very quick, pithy soundbite that sticks. Polstering, it's interesting also that this time out, polstering included what was a particularly personal opinion uh, with respect to the right to choose abortion. And I think that that skewed the result. And it played a stronger role in the national scene than people thought it would. So the pollsters, in shaping their questions, I don't think were able to get a clear enough view of what the real sentiment was. And it's You know, also, there's this notion that maybe the January 6th committee actually had an effect. I think that the uh, stop the steal election fraud discussion has gotten old and that people in general aren't buying it anymore. And those Republicans who continue to bang that drum did not fare well those Republicans who were tightly aligned and supported by uh, Trump did not fare well. Um, I think we saw
2: that crystal clear in the ticket in Massachusetts. Um, He could not, uh, Jeff Deal could not even get off the starting line uh, Mm -hmm. in Massachusetts. It was, he could not raise money. um, And you, it has led to a complete disintegration Of the republican party in massachusetts Uh, they have a um, a leadership opportunity Mm. uh, come january and uh, if they continue to go with jim lyons as the head of the republican state committee um, that's good news for us democrats right Um, but that's the end of the republican party in massachusetts he has followed the, the, the Trump mantra, and he's followed the stop the steal mantra, and those ideas simply don't resonate here in Massachusetts. I I, I think a real reflection, and given that we are a, a Franklin radio program, we ought to make reference to um, the Becca Rausch, Sean Dooley mm-hmm. race, mm-hmm. Yeah. which right. I think brought these themes mm-hmm home very clearly. it was the close most closely watched race in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts certainly uh, represented many of the issues that we're talking about uh, here today. I was uh, wondering how much of an impact um, the abortion and women's rights uh, issue would have on a race. and it was clear to me uh, upon seeing the results. Um, that it did play a huge role in that race. And the the other thing that I was fascinated with, and I happened to have this conversation with uh, Becca uh, the day of the election, I said, Becca, I said, your race is also a, I I don't know if mandate's the word, but um, we often in the political space make the point that signs don't vote. And I have to tell you the the signage that... uh, The Dooley campaign had out in the area was something like I have never seen in all my years of of politics, the four by eight signs, the the sheer volume of signs that Mm -hmm. were behind his campaign. And I looked at it and you say, wow, this is this is incredible, uh, the amount of support that's out there. Um, But we've always believed that, uh, you know, to win an election like this, you have to go to the grassroots, you have to go door to door, you have to speak to people. And uh, that principle was really uh, tested in that race. And uh, it was clear that uh, the the principle remains, signs do not vote. Uh, You need to connect with the voters and you need to um speak to the issues that are important to them, and you have to speak directly to them. And uh, you're not going to do it uh, just by putting uh, a bunch of signs out uh, in the area. So those are two observations from that race that- uh, Jeff, can I say a
4: might... quick quick story about Please. Rebecca door knocking, and then I'll, I'll give it right back to you. So I was door knocking- No, no, I, I actually
2: wanted to turn it over to you folks. I, I'm dying to hear your reactions to that whole thing. So- Kick it off. Well,
4: I, I should just say I was door knocking with my nine-year-old daughter, Rebecca, and you know, the first, first hour went pretty well, and then she was like, I am hungry, I am tired, why are you making me do this? And we got to a door, and she was pouting, and the woman at the door was like, oh, you look hungry, and she's like, I am so hungry, and the woman came back with like four different snacks and a bottle of water, and she was like, you're doing really important work, and my daughter was just like, wow, OK, I'm not harassing the people at the door. People want us to continue. And it felt so good to sort of be knocking on doors and it re-energized her. So we you know, covered our whole turf. And as, as some of you know, I don't drive. So covering a turf on foot uh, with a nine year old hanging around was was difficult. But it was important to me. I don't I don't do a lot of door knocking outside of, you know, Brookline, but I felt that Becca's race was really important, not just for the reproductive rights, but also, you know, she's been a very strong public health supporter on a lot of issues around COVID and difficult ones, you know, masking issues. Actually, just to to plug in, we just put out a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine yesterday or two days ago, which was covered in the New York Times. Actually, also a colleague in Japan sent me the Japanese media coverage of it, showing that masks work. And Becca has been talking about those issues and they're unpopular. So I think the challenge as a politician is how do you weave what is popular, what is not popular and what is important to do anyways? And I think she's been pretty clear. And so have you, Jeff, you know, of like, you know, this matters, this is important for our future. And so part of me, when, you know, people say that we're spending too much money and not thinking about the future, the future fundamentally requires bold action on climate change, the future requires bold action on some of these social issues that divide us. So, you know, thinking about everything through just a monetary frame misses the moral urgency to, you know, take action on some of these issues that really are central to the future, to our children and to our children's children. So, I don't know, I I think that's, you know, there's something to think about. And I was following very closely the New York, um, the New York state governor race, uh, in part because, my uh, director of the FxB Center is the current health commissioner there, and that was a tight race, tighter than anybody expected. That you know, there was towards the end, people were worried that um, the governor was going to lose because she was speaking too much about you know some of these issues of abortion rights, and that she should be fo- focusing on crime, and that that's you know, and, and it's true that her opponent was gaining momentum because of kind of a crime and fear narrative, but I worry that you know if you start picking a narrative that is intended to scare people into voting a certain way. What are you doing to our democracy? What are you doing to our community? What are you doing to our sense of like, you know, being afraid of your neighbor and then using, you know, images of people who maybe don't look like you. Going back to your point, um, Jeff, about, you know, people who look differently have to come together. So using fear tactics, I think, is, is harmful beyond whether you win or lose an election. And I'm proud when people are able to win through sort of clear messaging that doesn't, you know, doesn't become about attacking our our neighbors. So anyways, those are my high level points. But uh, I'm really, really um, glad that Becca, you know, managed to to pull through, of course.
3: And and I'm going to add to that, too, a phrase from Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Part of his speech on the mall. And the question that he asked was how long? How long can we as a society keep focusing on social and cultural issues and not on building up our people, creating jobs and a way of life that's respected and fruitful? How long can we continue to think that building prisons is a perpetual motion effort instead of building rockets and spaceships and helping to look toward the future? How long can we destroy our planet with all of the fossil fuels and not look at renewable energy and making it until one day, possibly one day, energy is a right, not a commodity? How long can we, as an American culture, disrespect our children by not providing them with universal? Childcare, with an education system that's worthy of us as a country, with a healthcare system where people don't have to look in their pocketbook to see if I can afford my prescriptions or can I really have that procedure? How long? And part of it, I think, and I'll throw this out to the group, part of it too is the fact that we take our people for granted. Now, I'm going to throw a little shade toward my buddy, Jeff, with regard to the legislature, not just you, Jeff, but the legislature, for example, question one, I read the top line on question one, question one passed, but I think it had the lowest percentage of popularity than any of the other four, uh, uh, other three uh, propositions. And part of that could be because there are some hidden, I think, uh, you know, some hidden Uh, real uh, sort of problems in question one. One, the thought that a small business owner goes through his or the family's entire life, sell their business at the end, and they get hit with a 4% addition because their business sells for well over a million dollars. The one time in their life when they were able to capitalize on their business Because for sure, they're not making, uh, uh, most small businesses in this state, they're lucky if they're, you you know, and and I'm talking about businesses, for the most part, that have less, uh, 50 or less employees. They're not making a million dollars a year. Selling my house. My house is appreciated, and I'm one of those, it won't sell for a million dollars, but let's say that it did. (laughs) Suddenly, at the, uh, you know, here it is, I'm in what are called my golden years, I'm going to sell my house. And then I'm going to get hit with a 4% tax. And I say to our legislature, that's not fair. Or the fact that if the money is supposed to go to education and to transportation, and this has happened in Massachusetts before, the bill says, well, it's going to education and to transportation unless the legislature decides a little differently. Well, that's the thing that starts to frighten people, because sometimes we get so disappointed in our lifetime with government that one little instance like that, uncorrected, starts people thinking down this path, well, can we trust them? And I think Trump has done a great job of bringing that lack of trust, just that little kernel, and started to feed it and make it grow as a small flame. And we've got to be careful with that. And that's one of the other things, too, that I took away from uh, from Tuesday. You look at a state like Florida where uh, uh, this person incarnate has literally start to burn that state down in terms of the relationship, and yet he did extremely well. Last time he won by a squeaker. This time and stuff, he wins by over 20-something points over his appointments. What do you guys think? Let me jump in
2: on the um, on the question one piece and the, the role of the legislature. So keep in mind, question one was a choice by the people to change their constitution to allow for a graduated income tax uh, for those making over a million dollars in a year. That wasn't an act of the legislature. The legislature cannot change the constitution. We had to pass that question in two successive legislative sessions in order to give the people the choice to make that. Uh, and the people did choose to make that. Now, um, you brought up two examples of, you know a small business selling their small business and having to pay an extra four percent. What's important to know is that extra four percent only applies, To that income that is beyond a million dollars. So, for every $100,000 that you make over a million, and God bless you if you are able to do that, you're going to pay an additional $4,000 per $100,000. I don't think that's unfair. Um, You know, when you look at um, some of the studies that have done analyses of the percent of uh, tax that uh, people pay, it's usually the people in the lower incomes that. Pay an overall greater tax because you have to f- figure in income tax, property tax, excise tax, sales tax. Uh, the, you know, lower income people tend to pay a larger share of their income on all of those taxes. And that's why this was called the fair share amendment, because it's it's trying to balance that inequity. And it balances that inequity in order to put money in the education system and the transportation system. Areas, uh, at least in transportation, has been long neglected. Uh, We need uh, good roads and good bridges to move people around this commonwealth so that they can work, live, and play. And you can't do that on unsafe roads. And some of this money is going to that and we talked about the importance of an education for an ordered society and putting that money uh, towards education, very good uses. Can you trust the legislature? Well, I hope that people will develop a faith in the legislature. That has been my uh, mission in my entire 10 years being here to try and communicate with people and develop a level of respect and, transparency and honesty with people we we don't change the rules to make ourselves better if we change the rules it's towards the object of making life better for everyone and uh you know when the 62f <clears throat> discussion came up that we had excess tax revenue and we had to uh, give it back to the people there was some clamor out there that oh they're going to try to change the rules so that that money doesn't go back uh, to the people. There was no discussion on Beacon Hill about changing the rules. The law is the law. We were going to follow the letter of the law, and those checks are going out. Unfortunately, the checks are going out to the people who need it least. Um, but uh, you know that's the nature of, of our system, and that's the law, and we follow the law. And, and in this situation with uh, the money going to education and transportation, we will follow the letter of the law. Um, you know, If a circumstance comes up, uh, that uh, we have no control over there's another pandemic or or something uh, outrageous happens. Uh, you're going to suggest that we shouldn't uh, take steps to, uh, you know help people. Um, I mean those are circumstances that I can't predict. Um, but generally, we serve and follow the law just like everybody else. And uh, I'm, I'm confident that uh, we will in this case and uh, you know, I'm encouraged that people said, Um, You know, we want a fair share amendment. We want uh, taxation to be spread out more evenly. uh, In this uh, question, which the people decided, it was up to the people of Massachusetts. And in our society, a majority prevails, whether it's one vote or a million votes, the majority prevails. And, um, you know, I don't know uh, that people can make a credible argument that because it was so close it makes it unfair no that's how our society works you 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 take it out give the people a choice and this is the choice that people made and, you, you uh, know I'm and let me they,
3: and let me clarify uh jeff because much of what you just described i personally knew but i'm playing devil's advocate here because these are the things that i'm hearing out on the street uh and i will clarify for our listeners i voted yes on question one, because I also believe that there needs to be a fair share, because I also understand the regressive nature of our uh, of our tax system here in in Massachusetts. Unfortunately, I don't have your eloquence to be able to explain these things. Simple. Well, I was I was hoping you felt that
2: way, because I said, that's not the the Dr. Michael Walker Jones that I know. So <laughs> I'm glad you were playing doubles. <laughs>
3: oh, You've of course. Me. I mean, you You've know, be I... hook, line and sinker <laughs> as an academic that's one of our qualifications to argue all sides of a particular position you know uh but yes here what you just did jeff is what we need to do more of we need to have these di- you know these moments of dialogue with people and as i heard those same arguments i'm making the same kind of uh points that you were uh, as i'm talking to my republican friends around the region uh you know i'm saying and those were uh, you know they took it upon themselves to say this is another one of those democratic plots here in massachusetts to overburden us with taxes and i said no that's not what this is about it's about a fair uh proposition so that the flat tax doesn't just impact uh in a disproportionate way uh the poor in the middle class, and then you have to go through that explanation. But, uh, uh, but again, I hope that our listeners heard what you just said because you're absolutely right on all fronts. This was a constitutional amendment. This was a choice of the people, and it's up to us individually to make sure that we understand when something like that is happening. Uh, and I uh, now I will debate this piece. The majority rule uh is a tenant of our electoral process uh but as a person of color in this country i have to be careful with that because the majority rule uh sort of tenant here doesn't always work in the best interest of all of our people and we have a history of that and let's you know and i will freely if if necessary come back on another program and let's talk about when the majority has been oppressive to the minority in this country uh, because they were uh, they were the majority. but that's not what's up for debate today. what what I'm looking at is the election itself and how telling uh especially uh, going back to Chris's comment, which is taking a look at outside of our borders, where's the rest of the country going? I mean, we know where we're going. Uh, We hope we know where we're going uh, uh, as a uh, a commonwealth. Uh, But where is the rest of the country going? And I'll say something that I said uh, before we went on air, which is we need a unifying project, uh, which goes back to my piece about how long, how long can we keep focusing on things that don't provide a massive jump forward? Uh, When John Kennedy talked about landing a man on the moon he shocked the world literally shocked the world that Mm -hmm. the united states was going to engage in something that was not only difficult but expensive oh my goodness they're going to create a whole agency of eggheads who are going to ultimately put a person on the moon now, I must admit, we've failed in one regard because we have not yet put a woman on the moon. And I think that's the next thing and stuff that we really ought to concentrate on is having a whole crew of women. And they probably will do the best job ever of getting to the moon, getting back, uh, doing the right collections and stuff and and start that industry up on the moon that needs to be done. I, I let's have not forget our women.
0: Let's not forget, Dr. Mike, that it was 11 black women who put the men on the moon.
3: Oh, oh, absolutely.
0: They did all the math.
3: <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Well, not just the black women, but there were other women in that particular crew. They were called computers. And if you haven't seen uh, Hidden, figures. Hidden Figures, thank you. Yes, uh, that
0: great movie, Hidden Figures. I, I want to also focus on, uh, by the way, while we have a little time left, on messaging. Uh, when Democrats were being accused of of failing to get their message out, uh, Democrats were framed as, you know, the the biggest thing we could do perhaps is write a sternly worded letter to The Times. <laughs> so uh, it, it, that you know, in terms of messaging, we were somewhat feckless. Um, and the the whole notion of putting a man on the moon, that had two components that were really important. drama, and a common enemy the russians so the the united states could easily rally around that one so looking at how long do we you know fill in x our our challenge on messaging is how do we put that same common cause common existential threat common goal that everybody can rally around because Everything that we look at is unfortunately somewhat. You talk about climate change; it's abstract, and yeah, we're seeing a lot of footage now. But even so, it still remains abstract for an awful lot of people. On other issues of messaging, the messaging that we've just gone through in this election cycle, and you know, I'm bringing this all this up because, you know, I've, I've worked on so many elections over the years, and messaging is so key. The Republican messaging appeared to have. A tremendous amount of strength, bombast, emotion, et cetera, behind it. But the one thing people don't consider is that the national Republican message was diffuse. It was actually arguing with itself. That is that there were Republicans on the national scene who, when the Supreme Court handed down its decision, they said, yeah, the states ought to be deciding this stuff. Yes, the states, the states, the states. Meanwhile, in their election speeches, they were saying, if I'm elected, there will be a national ban on abortion. Well, <laughs> you don't get to argue a national ban on something when you're arguing states' rights at the same time. So clearly, they were you know, betwixt and between on that argument. Um, also, too, with respect to election denial, they've been beating that drum ever since Trump's defeat. And states then enacted all kinds of legislation, state by state by state, that was purported to strengthen our electoral process. So given that states, secretaries of state, various legislatures have been at it for two years following what was largely a Republican mandate to strengthen our election laws, it put them in a position where it was really, really difficult this time out to claim that that election fraud was a continuing problem and it's it's been somewhat silent since that since last tuesday and not many have stepped up and said uh you know this is wrong and they are in a position where they really have to accept the results um well let me push back on that a little bit pete
3: i have been impressed with arizona and nevada Mm -hmm. Yes, they have pushed back every time there is a missive coming out of one of the election deniers. And in in particular uh, uh, from the former president, those election officials in those two states have done press conferences in the last few days that I think have just ripped the heart out of all of those accusations. Exactly. And I think that, uh, you know, and again, I think they are showing us a model. And it's unfortunate, but they're showing us a model of responsible leadership and a responsible control of the electoral process by responsible people, regardless of party. And And I think uh, that they have done a
0: great job. Agreed. In fact, we're really on the same page, because my point being that people who continue to be election deniers really no longer have any kind of a pedestal to stand on because of the fact that they are getting this pushback. States are saying, look, we're doing it right. Our numbers are accurate. Our numbers are good. Our numbers have a lot of integrity. And so this comes down to the populism and Republicanism, Trumpism of the past versus where the Republican Party needs to go in the future. That said, I think we saw clearly that the Trump movement has lost a lot of wind in its sails. Um, People are looking for something else. Um, McCarthy, at this point, is going to be struggling, uh, even if the House goes his way, um, because even within the Republican Party, there are people who think that no, we can't keep on beating the same past drum. We can't do electoral issues. We can't engage in random impeachment of anyone just because we don't like, you know, the way they look or whatever. Um, And we can't keep on trying to stage uh, all of this anger and divisiveness. And we need a positive message going forward. And within that same party, there are people who are still Beating the drum of populism, ultra-conservativism, who are not aligned by McCarthy. And so if he does become speaker, it's n- it, it's almost a, you know, the best thing that could happen to him is he becomes speaker. The worst thing that could happen to him is he becomes speaker. <laughs> he's he's he wants yeah. to be it in the worst way, and that's mm-hmm. exactly how it's gonna happen for him. Mm-hmm. So the next two years are gonna be very tumultuous within the party until it settles out and figures out where it wants to go. And people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Johnson, all of the extremes are going to have to find their way forward on some new path, because I think that at this point, the American population is just fed up with how it has gone. And I think that was a factor in this particular election cycle. I think people have said, I want people to get down to business and start doing what Congress is supposed to do. And so uh, it's going to be an interesting next two years, a fascinating next two years, because I think that the tenor is about to change somewhat dramatically compared to what we've seen on the
1: national stage in the past. Thank you all. Uh, Well, another more perfect hour has flown by and we have to say goodbye until next week. Uh, If you would like to weigh in on if you would like to weigh in on our discussions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. If you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. You can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online. Just visit our website, wfpr.fm. Wfpr.fm for Dr. Natalia Linos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, our representative on Beacon Hill, at least for another two years, Jeff Roy, along with Peter Jay and my co-host, Nick Remerson. I'm Chris Wolfe. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.